Roland Geyer is a professor at the Bren School of Environmental Science and Management, University of California at Santa Barbara, and the author of The Business of Less. Since 2000, he has worked with a wide range of governmental organizations, trade associations, and companies on environmental sustainability issues. His overarching goal is to help develop the knowledge, tools, and methods necessary to reduce the environmental impact from industrial production and consumption. Dr. Rolingeo, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Thanks for having me, Mia. So your focus is industrial ecology, and one of your current areas that you're researching is fast fashion. It's all around us, the 21 billion tons of textiles sent to landfills each year. How can we incentivize creating fashion that lasts? And what are some eco-efficient models that you're looking at? Yeah, fashion is, or apparel, clothes is something I got into almost by accident. And then I realized that it's actually a major contributor to environmental impacts, all sorts of environmental impacts. So it's a big deal in terms of sustainability. And it seems to be getting more attention in the current years, which is really encouraging. And the one project that I actually did with Patagonia, the apparel company that's headquartered in Ventura, so really close to our campus in Santa Barbara, we did a project looking at their material choices. And so the idea was to significantly reduce their carbon footprint, their greenhouse emissions by choosing low carbon materials. And the interesting finding that came out of that project was that there aren't really any low carbon or low environmental impact materials. So basically the big takeaway was that all materials have environmental impact. So there's this idea of all we have to do is just find that magic green material and then we get sustainable fashion. It's a pipe dream, really. So that got me thinking about different ways to reduce the environmental impact of fashion. And then one thing that occurred to me is that how fashion really is too cheap and that we expect a t-shirt to cost sometimes even less than $10, just a few dollars. And that one interesting way to actually increase the sustainability of apparel is actually to, and that may sound strange and counterintuitive to make it more expensive. And one way would be to actually pay fair wages to the garment workers all along the supply chain. And the way this makes fashion more sustainable is that essentially the consumer, so you and I, we pay more money for each individual garment, which means that money, that extra money that goes to the apparel workers is no longer available for us to spend on other things. So I, I call it reverse rebound effect because this idea of the rebound. So if things get more efficient, we save money, but then we spend that money on something else. So that something else will also have environmental impact. So that actually reduces the sustainability of efficiency improvements. So that is called rebound effect. And my idea is the reverse that we actually spend more money on things. And if that money goes to labor, which is something that really has no environmental impacts, then we reduce the environmental impact of our total spending. So that was a long answer, but I hope that <laughs> it, it made sense. And it's something that maybe you can tell I'm quite excited about. And I'm about to take on a PhD student to really 
dig into the weeds of this idea and see how, how robust it is and how much mileage is in it. Yes, I feel like certain brands like Patagonia, that's part of their brand identity is eco-awareness uh, and they don't want to have a, a big carbon footprint. It also occurs to me that you have to perhaps, or do, or do you perhaps take into your modeling psychological incentives because not all brands will be as motivated and their brand identity isn't as associated with the uh, environment. Absolutely, yeah. So that's always a question that comes up at some point is like, who, who is going to, even if we have great ideas to reduce environmental impact, how are we going to bring them about? So how, who is going to implement them and why would they want to? And that is, for me, it is the million dollar questions. I actually think it is easier to come up with more sustainable ways of making things and using things than it is to actually affect that change. So change our consumption habits, change companies' production systems. But the best answer, honestly, Mia, I, I have there is that it's it needs to be a collective effort. There needs to be a societal will somewhere <laughs> that motivates those changes. And for me, that broadly, that could either it could be the company itself, if it has motivated leadership or motivated owners, like in the case of Patagonia, right? It's privately owned and the owner or the owner family is very environmentally motivated. So that makes things easier. If the company is not the one, then, you know, like in the early 2000s or late nineties, there was a lot of excitement about the emergence of the green consumer. So the, that suddenly consumers really wanted to reduce the environmental impact of their consumption. And they were willing to pay extra price premium for that greenness of those products. And as I said, there was a lot of excitement about 20 years ago, and then it died down a little bit because what happened was that surveys, basically researchers conducted surveys asking individuals, would you like green products and would you be willing to pay a price premium for said greenness? And everyone said, yes, I'd, I'd love that. And that's how the excitement about the green consumer was born. But then they there was additional research that followed people, you know, actually looked at what they were actually buying in real life, not just saying they wanted to buy and they didn't quite follow through. So there, there was a gap between what consumers would like to do and what they actually do. We need to find ways to bridge that gap. I think there is real willing, but then there seem to be obstacles in, in follow through. And to be honest, I notice that myself, even, you know, when I'm stressed and in a rush, and then I don't behave in the ways that I'm not my best self, and I don't make the decisions that I Ideally, I would like to make. So I think it's about then creating that environment that enables or encourages consumers to be their best selves. How to do that? The, the, the final lever, I think, to bring about real change is policy, of course, public environmental policy. So if businesses on their own can't do it, if households on their own, if it's too difficult for them, then there, there is policy, which also is in the end, a collective expression, hopefully of, of societal will. There's a, a really interesting law that came into effect in Germany. I think it was like, uh, very recently, maybe last year with one of those 
terrible German names where they just put four nouns together. I think it's Lieferkettengesetz or something like that. And But what it says is that it requires manufacturers to make sure that in their supply chains, fair wages are being paid and best environmental practices are being used. So it, it creates, you know, a, a legislative requirement for the manufacturers to improve the social and environmental sustainability of their supply chains. And I, I think it's too early to say how it's going to play out this law, but I'm quite excited about it. Well, it is. And I see Germany really seems to be at the forefront and showing the way. I've spoken to some of the green politicians there. And yes, right. there's there some amazing solutions. So we, right. we're happy to copy them wherever we are. Yeah, it, but you point to the fact that it's easy for us to forget or diminish our individual contribution because it is small, but on mass, it's huge. It so certainly that, adds up. Yeah, so the eco-efficiency is really best when it's baked into the system, when it's part of a circular economy, or it's not just about recycling, it's about reusing or not making something disposable or eliminating the pollution before it gets out, you know, eliminating right at the manufacturing process. And the thinking on this is since over the course of your career, you were like at the, at the beginning of when these thoughts were being formed and these models were being created. Tell us how that's evolved and what are some of the enlightened practices now that you yeah yeah i i'm a child of the 80s <laughs> i'm an 80s kid i was born in 67 and then i started in the mid 80s in my teenage years i i got interested in environmental issues and i'm sure it's partially because there was a, a second wave of environmentalism in the early 80s greenpeace was big in germany at the time i remember as a teenager reading like 70s classics like uh, Small is Beautiful from E.F. Schumacher, Silent Spring from Rachel Carson. Actually, that was even published in the 60s. And then The Limits to Growth from, you know, Meadows and his team at MIT, where they did this back, it was published in 72. They did a computer simulation where they built a model of the world, a finite world with exponential economic growth. The model showed that that is not going well, that exponential economic growth will hit the, the finite physical limit of a finite planet. And that left a big impression on reading those classics. And I came of age in, in the eighties, I actually wanted to study something about environmental sustainability. I wasn't actually called sustainability yet, just environment, you know, environmental. And we didn't really, you couldn't really study that in Germany in, in the eighties when you couldn't study environmental science or sustainability. Or, so I ended up studying physics in Berlin and, but in the evenings I went to Greenpeace as a volunteer. And then of course, in the nineties, in 92, the earth summit in Rio de Janeiro happened and that was a big deal. And I think a couple of things happened, definitely took environmentalism out of its niche existence. I think it really turned it into something that, that everyone thinks about and everyone is like a mass phenomenon. But then something else happened during which it took me a while to figure out, to be honest, is that sort of environmentalism turned into corporate sustainability. And the idea 
that environmentalists constantly have to fight against evil industry was challenged. And there were some new paradigms that were created. One of them, you know, is now most people call it the wind paradigm, which is that companies can actually reduce their environmental footprint while still improving their economic performance. So environmental win, economic win, both is possible. And that was sort of a, a new narrative that was created right around the Earth Summit in 1992. And then when I finally decided that I really wanted to pursue environmental sustainability as my profession, not just as a hobby in the evening in the late 90s, that was the prevailing paradigm was the, you know, win-win. And so I did end up actually for a few years doing research at a business school, looking at reuse and recycling, mostly actually from an economic perspective. So it was trying to find business models that help reuse and recycling become widespread activities. And to be honest, it's, it, as we know, it, it didn't really happen. Reuse and recycling are still sadly not widespread activities. In some industries, you know, there is, you know, like metals recycling. We do that a lot. We know how to do that. But when it comes to plastics, the numbers are, are fairly poor, much better in Europe, but in, in the US and Canada, the plastic recycling rate is 9%. So it's really sad. And reuse, it's still, we all love the idea of reuse, but we still haven't quite figured out how to make that happen. My hope is that this sort of new, renewed enthusiasm created through the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and their sort of rebranding of reuse and recycling into the circular economy, that will maybe finally help us to get off that linear production consumption model and on a truly circular path. But in a way, I've been there the first time around. I've been there in the 90s where we got very excited about reuse and recycling. And of course, it's been around for much, much longer. I mean, in a way, reuse and recycling has been around probably as long as mankind, humankind's been around. And then it didn't quite happen. And so now we're back to thinking about circular models. And my hope is that now policy is involved. So policymakers are involved, you know, at national levels, at the even international levels. And hopefully that will, again, we're talking about the levers that really bring about that change. I think the combination of companies thinking again about circularity and households thinking about circularity, but now also with policies support, right? That that might bring about that change that I think we all desire, but haven't quite figured out how to make it happen. Hey, Dr. Geyer. So in your latest book called The Business of Less, you presented another analytical framework called Edge Green, which you believe to be better suited than the win-win paradigm to analyze the sustainable system. And I find this to be very interesting. So perhaps you can expand a bit upon that. Yeah, I'm very happy to do that, Kevin. So the win-win paradigm is very appealing. And also the idea of eco-efficiency is very appealing that basically we just need to reduce the environmental impact of every product we make. And that's been part of my research for a long time. And so there were a few things that I noticed over the years in my research, and they're sort of twofold. One is that it seems that there are some physical limits to eco-efficiency. So you can't just 
design, energy and material use and pollution entirely out of product systems. Right? That was one of the visions of the 90s. You know, there's a famous quote by Michael Porter. He's actually a business, you know, a strategy professor at Harvard Business School. He said, pollution is resource efficiency. The idea is that we could just design pollution out of the system, but that's not really physically possible. If you study the physics of making things, you can't completely design pollution out of the system. So there are physical limits to the efficiency, which we can do things. And then the other thing I noticed is that even if we manage to halve the environmental impact per say unit product, but at the same time, we double the total output of those products. We've basically are exactly where we were before, only that now we get twice as many products for the same environmental impact. The earth is finite. So the earth, like we're already kind of exceeding the carrying capacity of the earth in terms of environmental pollution. So we need to reduce absolute pollution, not relative pollution, right? Pollution per product. And that's where net green comes in. And it's a change of our perspective. So rather than asking, say, what is the environmental impact per ton of steel or per ton of aluminum, it's, which is eco-efficiency, right? But then at the same time, we're doubling aluminum production every 20 years or something. The question is that change that we are considering, reuse model, a redesign in your product, what are the net environmental consequences? of this change. And, and if one of the consequences is a growth in total consumption, then you need to account for that in your net green measurement. And so you couldn't buy, you couldn't, you know, like eco-efficiency would say, oh, great. We halved environmental impact per ton of aluminum. That's amazing. Net green would say, okay, so you halved environmental impact per ton of aluminum, but the you now also doubled the aluminum output. So actually we're exactly where we were before. Does that make sense? So that's, it's sort of a shift of perspective in order to really account for all the implications of a change in a product system, a change in the supply chain in order to not fall into that, what I would call eco-efficiency trap. But I wonder how much corporate buy-in this idea can garner, considering that win-win paradigm is built to calm the feud between the corporate industries and the environmental activists. Do you worry that the replacement of the win-win paradigm by the net green can reignite the conflict between the two groups? I really hope it does not. I'm, you know, I, I think it's good that we got away from this sort of dichotomy between environmentalism and business. But at the same time, I want us to be realistic. I don't want us to pretend that we're making all these corporate sustainability strides where in fact we're not. So I'm asking, I, I think there are two things that are going on. I, first of all, I just want everyone in the corporate sustainability space to be realistic about what we're doing and where we're headed and whether we're actually making progress or not. And so far, I feel feedback's been really positive from the sort of corporate sustainability community. It, it is easier. You're absolutely right. It's much easier as, say, a CEO or a corporate professional to fall in love with eco-efficiency than to embrace 
net green because net green is the harder concept. Clearly, it challenges the idea that basically win-win is sort of, you know, that expression, having your cake and eating it too, is like the idea that win-win tells companies, oh no, you can be relentless profit maximizers, but you can be sustainable at the same time. You actually don't have to, you know, there is no trade-off to be made. There is, there is no contradiction in those two. And I just, I think it becomes increasingly obvious that there is, and we just need to be honest about it. And I think some companies will not want to embrace that. I know, you know, some companies and, and some corporate sustainability professionals are sort of, they just want to be honest and they say, okay, if win-win hasn't worked, let's see it, what else we can do. And I think net green is just, business is not the enemy. Business is how we organize life. Business is how we make things, move things. Most people are employed by a business or own a business. So business is us, right? It's how we organize our life. So it's not about saying business is the enemy, but I think what it's saying is that business, the way we've done it so far, business as usual, is never going to be environmentally sustainable and we just need to be honest about it yeah so a couple of thoughts pop into my head i remember when i was in my circular economy class and corporate sustainability class one of the major arguments for companies to embrace sustainability and circularity is the potential to reduce cost and increase or even maximize corporate profit but perhaps what you are saying is that we need to let go of the idea of profit maximization. And I'm just curious if you have seen companies that have embraced the idea of net green or true sustainability. Oh, <laughs> that would be wonderful. I'm not aware of an official corporate endorsement of the net green concept. I would love that. I had some really good feedback from corporate sustainability professionals, various companies. That's that's one thing. It would be very different if the CEO of a company says, we want to pursue net green. I would love that. I have not. Maybe it's early days. So the book came out last September. So what's that? It's about five months. Give it some more time. But yeah, it, well, one thing about, you know, you mentioned, you know, let go of profit maximization. There are a couple of encouraging signs that I want to point out. Like in, in the US, we have this thing now called a B corporation. It's called a benefit corporation. And that they that actually has been around for about 10 years now. But there are, I think, over 3,000 companies are now uh, registered as benefit corporations. And what it means is that they can have officially goals other than financial. So they can say, we have those environmental and social goals and they are just as important as our financial goals. And, and it's an official thing. So they couldn't be sued by a shareholder saying that, oh, you're not maximizing shareholder value because but they could say, no, we're a B corporation and look, these are our goals. The round, what is it called? The round table of American CEOs is an association of the CEOs of the sort of 200 biggest companies in the US. They actually officially changed the purpose of a company from shareholder maximization to a more broader sort of stakeholder perspective, which I found really encouraging. That happened, I think, two years ago, which I think is wonderful. And like, I'm obviously, I'm not saying companies shouldn't be profitable. I think 
it, it might just be a good idea to say maximizing profit is not the same thing as making a profit. And I know of companies that sort of made changes for environmental reasons that were actually costly. And so they basically said, okay, we're going to make that trade-off. We're going to earn a little bit less, but we're going to make that environmental change. So not common maybe yet, but like, I, I think being profitable and maximizing profits is not the same thing. And I, I think it's, a, you know, for some reason we have it in our head now that companies need to maximize profits. Dr. Guy's research and particularly his new net green framework have really impacted my way of thinking surrounding sustainability and circular economy. The possibility of a rebound effect and the flaws of win-win demonstrate that we need to apply a comprehensive view on sustainable systems by considering its impact ranging from individual product to the wider economic system. If we constrain ourselves with the narrow analytical mindset that is based on a single product, then we risk overlooking its far-reaching influence on the entire system. With this new mindset, we can start to ask some very interesting questions. For instance, there are now food platforms that set out to sell leftover food. This kind of business model is created to reduce food waste, which is of course very admirable. However, do these platforms really reduce food waste, or are they actually incentivizing food producers to intentionally produce more food than necessary just so they can expand to this market? This is just one of the questions that we need to answer. Something else that I find very exciting in this research on sustainable industrial system is that it started off as a very engineering-focused subject, but eventually it led to the very important discussion regarding fair wages and worker rights, which are more in line with social sustainability concept. This may be surprising at first, but after some thought, I think this is a perfect representation of the interrelatedness between the three pillars of sustainability, social, environmental, and economic. One cannot improve without the improvement of the others. This is where the interdisciplinary and universal nature of sustainability is really revealed. And these are the properties of sustainability that we should always keep in mind when realizing the ideals of sustainability. We think a lot now about the ecosystem of cities. Cities are really like ground zero for climate change. And many communities and cities, they, they don't know what their future is going to look like when it comes to housing, transport, education, working at home, all these things, and not to mention the heat waves and the storm surges. So what are your reflections on the systems and, and flows within cities? Oh, I, I know there's, there's an entire subfield in industrial ecology, urban metabolism and urban sustainability, and, and obviously it goes far beyond industrial ecology, the studying the sustainability or lack thereof of cities or urban areas. And the one, and I'm not like the big expert there, I'm going to just put that out there. The one thing, whenever I ventured, you know, through maybe uh, student projects into that area that every single time my students find out, which I, I find remarkable, is that 
they all like I had a, a group project that just studied transportation, like the future of transportation in California. They did that uh, for Volvo, and and they basically came back and say, oh, so if we study transportation, then we need to study urban development and, and infrastructure. And and suddenly they realize, and if we study urban development, we need to think about housing. We need to think about co-location of jobs and shops and suddenly they realize it's all connected and that might be one of the challenges of urban sustainability that it's all connected so the the way we move around is connected to the way we build the city and and i think some of the sort of intrinsic insustain or non-sustainabilities in urban areas seem to be designed in especially in the united states where there are just so many places where if you don't have a car, you're basically stranded. You can't go anywhere. My my house being one example. Then it's really difficult. Then people say, well, don't just talk about electric vehicles, talk about public transport. And I say, well, that's, that's a big lift for even a little place like Santa Barbara. And it's an even bigger lift for a public transport disaster like Los Angeles. So... You know, this, so maybe what the future is thinking from a giant place where all the shops are in one corner and the people live on the other side and they drive to work to yet another side that it's more commingled, right? There you have little centers within conurban areas where you don't have to travel so far and it's all just a little bit smaller scale. But to be honest, yeah, I'm slightly shooting from the hip there. <laughs> I'm, I'm also, I think what I'm showing is that I'm Euro, so that's, it's, I think it's much more the European model is co-locate things and I, I miss that. And I do think it has some intrinsic. Yes, because I'm in Paris. And so that's just like second nature. Everyone has their uh, Cartier. Speaking of German solutions, and I was thinking when you were talking about it before, uh, we interviewed Hans-Joseph Fell. It's possible. He lives a completely net zero life. His house, his car, his everything, he is net zero. And he says we can get there, believe it or not, in 10 years. I don't know. But he is a former, you know, he formed the Energy Watch Group. You know, he's a former green politician. I, I would love that we could get on that train. I don't know what it will take. How could we get there? How could we prioritize that? 10 years. Yeah, that's ambitious. I, I do actually think that a big energy transformation away from fossil fuels to something that is essentially fossil fuel free is possible. I'm, I've done a little bit of research there. I have excellent colleagues that like what they do is create 100% renewable energy scenarios, you know, for California, for the entire US, for different nations. And they have convinced me with their research that it's absolutely possible, like technically feasible. How, again, it's less about we need the technologies to get there. It's more about how do we get the the motivation and the social dynamic in in order to get there i think it's going to be really interesting to you were mentioning germany right so germany has a new government the green party is a, you know the second largest party in in the government has the the ministry of the environment has the ministry of the economy so it's i know they're really ambitious so it's going to be really interesting to see like how successful 
Germany is going to be, because I think in principle, they are in a really good position to really move aggressively towards an, an energy transformation. Yeah, 10 years, I don't know. Let's talk again in 10 years. I think we do need a few with the, you know, the government, but also like a public-private uh, partnership. And you have great companies with in Germany, so like Siemens, you know, really showing the way. But you would know more about that, about some of the exciting partnerships or ways that it's more integrated within public policy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, and I don't want to downplay California's efforts. I think California is actually very committed to, to renewable energy, passed very aggressive Senate bills, and is, is on a good path. I think like on roughly both the Germany and California are sort of right around the 35, 40% renewable content in their electricity mix, which is fantastic. They're at this point now, you're talking about this public-private partnerships, they're at this point now where even though places like California have no shortage of sunshine, the grid operators actually have problem now integrating additional photovoltaic electricity because it's all generated when the sun shines. And this is not where most of the electricity is actually demanded, which is later in the evening. So now the big challenge is going to be how to coordinate that demand and supply, you know, sort of misfit with battery storage, other intelligent storage solutions, or, you know, demand side management, getting people to change their consumption habits of energy. And I think there is, there are huge op opportunities for, for companies big ones like Siemens, but also little start, sort of intelligent startups that come up with sort of smart solutions in this ever more complex space of the electric grid. Yeah. And I think the more policy support there is for those things, the, the more likely their success. And Kevin, you were right. It was Milton Friedman, who the famous, infamous <laughs> neoclassical economist who said the social responsibility of business is to increase its profits. And I do think it's, it's falling out of favor, that, that view of the role of businesses. And as you reflect on your own journey of discovery, which I think yeah. characterizes your own education, what are your reflections on how we might make, provide a more robust a climate environmental education? How can that be more integrated, more dis multidisciplinary, more vocational? In, in terms of education, I would love it if different aspects of environmental sustainability just became, as you say, integrated into the curriculum of pretty much every grade in school and then also in gen college education that you don't have to make it all the way to college and then decide to major in environmental science in order to get that type of education and that kind of knowledge. I think it's, it's much more basic and much more important than that. It should be something, you know, it should be sort of part of general education. I would say, because it's that important. And I know that I have teenage children, so they went through elementary school and then middle school here in the U.S. And I know there are many teachers that try actually to integrate these subjects, you know, into the sciences, into STEM more broadly, even into social sciences, which I think is, is great, but I think it's mostly, I see it still as, you know, they have to make that sort of personal effort. It would be great if it was just more integrated into the, the official curriculum so that 
people don't have to, like me, don't have to wait until their late 20s before they can really learn about environmental sustainability. They just learn it just like they learn social sciences in STEM. Yeah, and I think that when people can get excited about the create, not everyone has to come up with these great inventions or things like mm -hmm. that, but when they can get excited about the creative aspects, because so, I think that's also a thing that some people feel that the STEM is like not for them. They don't feel as strong. Right. But I feel if it's introduced young, there's a kind of sense of joy and you can even be playing and learning about the natural world. It's not right. really difficult. Oh, yeah, absolutely. My wife is actually, she's teaching at an elementary school. She's a music teacher there. And I know that sort of the, something they're trying now is to actually turn STEM into STEAM. I don't know if you heard about that, but it's basically the A stands for arts, right? So they are trying to integrate the arts better with, yeah, what you say, some people see as, as sort of more dry engineering and maths. And I think that there's real potential. And I agree. I think if, if you teach things like maths and engineering and physics in a slightly more creative, playful way, I, I think it might appeal to more people. Exactly. And so much for what I understand from my very layman's view of what you do, a lot of it's common sense, it's problem solving. I mean, once you have the foundation that you have, which is a higher degree of attainment than most people, mm. but of those common sense managerial, those are things that are, that you find in managers of theater companies, but they feel right. a little bit left out. So I feel like right. all of our talents have to come to the table. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I agree with that. So the one thing I've learned and I'm really convinced of now, and I yet have to find a way to integrate that into my actual research determined to do is that environmental sustainability and social sustainability are intimately connected. So I, I actually think it like if we stop looking at environmental sustainability as sort of a simple sort of technical engineering, more sort of a social enterprise that, that sort of combines environmental and social issues and sort of tries to address them both together. It might also appeal to a broader, wider group of people. Exactly. There's so many of these points that I think you really addressed that this need to have a, a rethink about major things. And mm. one of them is like, say energy, it's been treated as an, a commodity and it is a mm. commodity. Mm. But doesn't mean that so replacing our current models of energy but at the same time it's not really to maximize and get the most out of energy just mm -hmm. to replace it to, i know that this is a this is moving away from a business model but some people are putting forward that we have to think about as energy commons yeah i think one problem is a commodification of things actually not just energy but i think you're right in in a way energy is also just a luck it's just it's just like air travel and so many things we take for granted i do even just that zoom call that we're having right now it's absolutely incredible that we're just talking to each other you in paris i'm in santa barbara i don't even know where kevin is he he, he could be anywhere really and i couldn't tell <laughs> and yeah and we have these things and i think they we can use them as a source of to build a sustainable global community or we could just see mindless consumers of those things and and i think that is a, a choice and to bring it back you know to what you said about education, I think if we actually integrate these kind of things into curriculums, school curriculums and undergraduate curriculums, I think hopefully we, everyone would start thinking differently about these things. 
Yes. I think that you are sharing this with corporations that you may become in for consultant. It's great for that to be made part of their brand identity as well, because it's not just the things that you buy. I think it's something like the happiness that you share, the sense of well-being that you get from living in a, in a health, on a healthy planet. That certainly brings me happiness. So as you think about the future education and some of the teachers or life lessons that were important to you, As I said, I think I had my environmental awakening with some of those books I mentioned earlier, but then I was just very lucky that finally in, I believe it was 89, I, I, Bob Ayers, who is one of the founding fathers of industrial ecology, he, he offered me a research position without really knowing me. I think he had, I don't know, he, maybe that was a kinship because he's a physicist by training. I'm a physicist by training, but he just said, hey, I've got some funding here. You could just research, reuse, remanufacturing at the business school where I am. And so that really made everything. That was the big change for me. So thank you, Bob. And then I was very lucky there at the business school in Fontainebleau, just 60 kilometers south of Paris to meet Luke van Wassenhove, who was an, or is an operations research professor, very esteemed. And so he also, I learned a tremendous amount from him. Thank you, Luke. And then I, I did decide that I didn't want a PhD from a management school. Instead, I went to the UK to study with Roland Clift and Tim Jackson at the University of Surrey, their center of environmental strategy. So those four really were my big mentors. I, I owe them a lot. And I guess, you know, as you think about, you know, what this is all for, you know, as you think about this planet we live on and the beauty and wonder of the natural world, do you, do you have a, a memory or something that you return to that inspires your journey as a, an ecologist? Oh, I, I do love nature and all, always the connectedness and the happiness I, I feel in nature, whether that's a, a wheat field in outside my little hometown in Northern Bavaria, or whether it's the Alps or whether it's the California desert, I'm just happy outdoors. And I just, I'm, I think my original motivation is just to, that I felt this source of my happiness, this beauty of nature is under threat, which I still think it is. And so I just wanted to make it my job to help address that and avert that. So I'm driven by this optimism or, or this, this strong belief that there is a way that like nature and human society can coexist. That strong belief sort of feeds me every day. Slightly ironically, my job means that I'm pretty much stuck <laughs> in my office <laughs> every day. My study of environmental sustainability does not take me into nature, but typically to landfills or steel mills or some other industrial facilities, but that's the source of environmental impact. So I, I do think I'm working at the right spot. So I, now I have to get my nature fix outside of work, but that's okay. So we appreciate your sacrifice of visiting these <laughs> and these systems and just your contribution. So thank you, Dr. Roland Geyer, for your insights into industrial ecology, the business of less, and rethinking corporate sustainability to reduce environmental impact. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Mischalski Foundation.
This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Yan Song Lee with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Yan Song Lee. Digital media coordinator is Phoebe Browse. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.